Everyone runs away from pain, dodging the truth it comes with. But you are done with limiting your greatness in the shackles of fear. You see fuel in the fire. You taste ripe fruit in real answers. You move to the drums with wild expression. Enter From Pain to Gain, the podcast about identifying pain so you can ultimately gain health and wealth. Because without identifying a mountain, how can you climb it? Here's your host, Ivan Alpha. Welcome to From Pain to Gain, Ivan, and we have an amazing guest today. I am so excited. Oh my gosh, this is like our first celebrity guest. It's, uh, it's a time we're going to have. So we're talking reconciling racism. <sighs> Hard topic. Racism creates a gap in human relationship. While it can be beyond frustrating and infuriating, we can create a stopgap by reconciling our own belief systems and emotions around it, thereby creating friendship that transcends the gaps. Who better to do this than our guest today, Daryl Davis, whom wrote Clandestine Relationships, this book right here, and explain his journey into interviewing hate group leaders, eventually becoming their friends, and some even renounced their own hate group membership because they couldn't reconcile becoming friends with the great man that is Daryl Davis and still being a part of that group. Daryl Davis has encouraged over 200 KKK members to give up their robes and became friends with a good number of them. Daryl also has a magnificent career in the music world, having played with other musical greats such as Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, the legendary blues band, formerly the Muddy, Water, Muddy Waters Blues Band, and many others. Daryl Davis, welcome to From Pain to Gain. Thank you. I feel like I'm gaining right now. I'm out of pain because I'm with you guys. <laughs> awesome. Would you like to say any words uh, on this theme of ours before we get rolling into the CAGE acronym? Sure. Well, you know, it's a great pleasure to be here, and I really, really thank you guys for having me. I think, you know, the topic is is well uh, well needed today. It's always been needed. But, you know, you can never say enough about bringing people together, reconciling differences, whether they are racial, political, religious, or or otherwise. You know, we never gain anything by not talking about it. We gain when we do open up the conversation. Indeed. Yeah. We got to do it, having the conversation. Um, and that's the and, main you know, thing. A, a lot of people are afraid to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate you guys yeah. you know, having this platform to uh, to allow them. Yeah, we like to deep dive into the painful topics so that we could build from it. So thanks for joining us here today. And to, before we jump into the cage, you know, the complacency, atrophy, guilt, and escape phases through getting gain out of some pain, I want to just describe some brief history that elaborates on the urgency of this issue. So here's uh, three facts. Uh, when the KKK was restarted in 1915, they grew to 100,000 members by 1921. And by 1922, the membership exploded to over 2 million members in one year. That's crazy. Uh, during the election of Barack Obama, one of my heroes, KKK grew uh, again. They, their growth renewed. And now we see political parties open to not even denouncing hate groups. So definitely a timely manner. And so as we go through each of the four phases of the cage, to elaborate, I want us to go into the perspective of a KKK member as best we could talk to their perspective, especially with your experience with them, Daryl. And then also your perspective, Daryl, directly. 
as a recipient of, you know, racial injustice and what you have done to address those gaps. Um, sure. Also help facilitate with Jason Montoya by asking questions for each aspect based on the perspective of each party. So let's get rolling. Complacency. From the KKK member, the founding members appear to initially just want it to be a social club. And they just want to do pranks and maybe just look cool. But they got complacent and let it get out of hand. Uh, so how did the prospects, uh, you know, as this grew into a hate group and a more violent group, how did the KKK prospects rationalize becoming KKK members, in your opinion, Daryl? Okay, so let's let's go back a little ways. Okay, so the KKK uh, Ku Klux Klan <laughs> was uh, formed on uh, Christmas Eve, eighteen sixty-five, shortly after the end of the Civil War, and it was put together by six uh, Confederate uh, soldiers, Confederate veterans, and the purpose was to form a club, a social club, as you put it, that maintained the ideology of the Confederacy. And they became kind of like a, a para-police department, if you will. They wanted to enforce uh, justice on people who broke the law, um, white or black, uh, adulterers, criminals, etc., of any color. And as the thing grew, it became more and more uh, focused on black people. And they put on these robes and hoods and masks uh, in order to uh, secure their identity from the general public. It gave them kind of a mystique and also um, evoked fear in people. Fear is probably the greatest weapon to control somebody. You know, because you're always afraid of something, you're going to stay away from it. So that was a big tool that was used. And when they saw how they could control Black people with that fear, then it, it exploded. You know, it just grew and grew. The violence became so out of hand, not because the KKK got complacent, but because society got complacent or, or mm -hmm. remained complacent, all right, and allowed it to happen. Finally, in 1871, the U.S. Congress passed what was what is known as the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, and that suppressed the Ku Klux Klan because the violence had gotten so out of hand. It suppressed it, drove it underground. And then, as you pointed out, it was not revived again until 1915 when a movie came out called Birth of a Nation. And that just re-sparked an interest, reinvigorated the whole idea. And so they built up the KKK again. And this time, as you pointed out, it grew to 2 million members in one year. At its height, right uh, in, the, in the late 20s, early 1930s, uh, it raised a peak of 4 million members, the majority of them in Indiana. And um, it was formed in, in Pulaski, Tennessee, but the majority of members at that time were in uh, Indiana. Oh. And the violence got so out of hand that, again, it had to, to be suppressed. But uh, the KKK is still around. You know, 157 years later, it's oh. still here. Yeah. And I apologize, I totally missed the Confederate part of that, that they were the founding members. So I definitely should have done my research better. It's okay. That's why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything about Indiana that made it more vulnerable, specifically, that you know? No, not so much more vulnerable, but there was a very charismatic 
a leader of the KKK who was in Indiana. And we know how charismatic leaders can uh, kind of uh, brainwash people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and it also sounds like when there's chaos, that is the place or the time for someone like that to exploit the population. Right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, um, even though we say that uh, a dog is man's best friend, you know, and that may be true, but uh, but human beings are more akin to cats than okay. dogs. No, truly, because, you know, if if you have a dog, and you were to to move, like, you know, for example, you moved from Flagstaff to Atlanta or something, your dog would be happy to go anywhere you want to go. Your do- you, you could move every month to a different location. Your, your dog would be happy as long as he's mm. with you, right? A cat does not like change. Mm. A cat will always be trying to escape and go back to where it knows. Yeah. All right? Human beings are the same way. Human beings do not like change. We become complacent. All right? And we don't want change. So, you know, the Civil War, um, well, let's put it this way. In the North, if you go to high school in the North in this country, you were taught the Civil War was fought over slavery. Yes, that is correct. It was, it was definitely fought over slavery. However, if you go to school in the South, you were taught, no, 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 no. The Civil War was fought over states' rights. Yes, that is correct. It was fought over states' rights. The state's right to own a slave. That's what they're talking about. You understand? So, so they just, yeah. they just reframe it a different way. All right. So the South. What, what, what would you say is the underlying issue underneath both of those? Well, the underlying, um, well, the North realized, hey, you know what? Human, we, we can no longer own human beings as property. They are human beings, you yeah. know, and it's written, you know, that we black people were three fifths of a human being. Yeah. So that's that's how they justified it. Mm. All right. Okay. So the North got the idea. All right. Um, the now understand, people made a lot of money off of slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, people are working for you and you're not paying them. So all the work that they they've done is money in your pocket because you're not shutting out to pay people. They're slaves. They're working for free. All right. So when when you have that kind of income and somebody's going to come and stop it and tell you no. You you can't do this anymore. You know, they are affecting your pocketbook. Yeah. Your wallet. So now you're going to fight to maintain yeah. that. Okay. So they have become complacent with the idea of slavery. You know, this is mm-hmm. good. You know, when you hear, you guys are young, but you perhaps you've heard the term, oh, he comes from old money. She comes from old money. Old money is the money made from slavery, from the cotton plantation, the tobacco plantation, Mm. things like that. When somebody refers to new money, they're talking about, you know, Silicon Valley and things like that, right? Mm. So people become accustomed to this lifestyle, and now you're going to interrupt it by by cutting my wallet, all right? So they fought to maintain that because they didn't like that change. Human beings do not like change. All right. So then as a result, the KKK, you know, was like, okay, so now we can't own you anymore, but we're going to control you. You will never be our equal, you know? Mm. So they instituted segregation, things like that. Oh yeah. You know, you know, you know, we, 
You will never eat at our dinner table. You will not drink from our water fountain. You will ride in the back of the bus. You will not use our restroom. You have to use your own restroom. You know, this is called Jim Crow laws and segregation. So the KKK was also there to enforce segregation because they were trying to maintain that complacency that they had with slavery. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I would ask then is, and this might relate to both why people joined the KKK, but why did, I mean, not everyone in the South owned slaves. So why did they cohere behind those slave owners? Because A, they had a a, a notion of white supremacy, mm-hmm. you know, that you know, we we are above all. And these people are subservient. Uh, it was, a, I won't say it was exactly the same, but it was similar when the Irish came over or the Italians came over. There was a lot of discrimination against the Irish people, even though they were white, but they were considered lesser than other Europeans in this country. Italians were also considered less than than other, other white people uh, because they had swarthy skin. Polish people were always considered less. You know, there were a lot of jokes made about Polish people and things like that, even though they shared the same skin color as others. So, you know, people have a have a have a notion that they have to in order for them to feel good about themselves, that they have to make somebody else feel lesser. So there therefore there's a contrast. Yeah. One of my uh, favorite parts of of your book was when one of the clan leaders mentioned well the white man built america your your response was quite uh you know cut and straight to the point like actually you no know, uh, minorities blacks were on skyscrapers uh, creating clothes for everybody working farms so he, that's not entirely true um so it's amazing how the human mind could also be complacent and you know yeah well and that's not so much different now we i mean hispanic community is building our 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 roofs now you know (laughs) they're doing our roofs now (laughs) exactly exactly you know and um okay i'm 65 years old all right so when i was a kid in uh, junior high school what you guys would call middle school now all right um i would be riding on on the bus on the way to school and we might be going down a road that's being repaved with asphalt or whatever construction mm. on the road. What, what what do you see when you look out the bus window? Back then, you would see a bunch of black guys working on the road with a, with a jackhammer. You know, or they're down in the ditch shoving that asphalt onto the onto the pavement, right? And they're sweating. And there's some white guy in a nice press shirt and tie and got his hard hat on and he's directing them pointing like this telling them what to do and he's wiping his own head as though he's done some work (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) now today so you know it was the black guy that was being suppressed today you go down those same streets because you know they get paved every every three or four years so you go down those same streets today what do you see you see hispanic guys right and who's doing this and directing? It's a black guy or a white guy in the press shirt. Mm-hmm. So so people have climbed the ladder a little bit, but in order to be on top, you've got to push somebody else down. That's the mentality. And I think it's wrong. It's just as mm-hmm. wrong what's being done today to other people as what was done 
to people who look like me back when I was growing up. Yeah. yeah. And to add to the pain, they're underpaid. Absolutely. Yeah. And and let me, you know, you know I'm glad you brought up that uh, that that point, Ivan, because, uh, you know, questions say, well, why do people join the KKK? Well, there's several reasons. Uh, it could be a family tradition. My grandfather was in the Klan. My daddy was in the Klan. I'm in the Klan, so my kids are going to be in the Klan. So a family tradition passed down, right? Um, or it could be you move into an area that is a Klan stronghold. That town is a very, very clannish, if you will. And so if you want to assimilate and do business in that town, you know, you have to ingratiate yourself in there. You join the local chamber of commerce, the local country club, the local KKK, just in order to, to you know, to do business. It's like a gang. You know, you, you know, if you lived in Los Angeles, you know, you move into certain neighborhoods, you know, you got to join that gang if you want protection on your block or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, and then that's, you know, that's the second reason. Another reason is uh, economics. You go to a, let's say, a coal mining town. Um, there are a lot of coal mining towns. And all of us, now people have been working those coal mines for generations. Your great-grandfather, your grandfather, your father. And as soon as you get out of high school, you go right to the coal mine. And that's how you make your money. These people, these coal miners are predominantly white. There's not one racist bone in their body. They're they're making money. They're feeding their family. They're you know they're paying their bills. No problem. They're happy people. All right. But then, all of a sudden, as of lately, in the in the past you know two couple decades here in this country, a lot of coal mining companies again, which are owned by white people, begin laying off their white workers and hire replacing them with immigrants whether the immigrants are legal or illegal. It doesn't matter to the company because that uh, to Ivan's point, they're going to pay them a lot less. They're going to pay them a lot less and they're going to get the same production, if not more. All right. So therefore they're making more money. The company's making more money by laying off their own white workers and hiring other people who they can pay less. So now these people who've been working there for generations are now out of work. And they can't get any other job because they're not qualified for any other job. All they know is mining the coal. That's all they know, right? So now the bank is knocking on their door, you know, for their mortgage because they haven't been paying it. And they're and they're on, on the brink of eviction and foreclosure. So the Klan will come into a town like that, that's depressed like that, and hold a rally. And say, you know, the blacks have the NAACP and the Jews have the ADL. Nobody stands up for the white man but the Ku Klux Klan. You know, your job is not gone, but you're gone. And they got some, you know, racial expletive working your job. Why is he there and you're not there? You've worked there for years. Come join us. We'll get your job back. We stand up for the white man. And these people who were never racist to begin with, they're, they're at wit's end. They don't have any job. They don't have any money. And they're thinking, you know, the guy's right. My job is still there, but somebody else is working it. How come they got rid of me? Well, what do I have to lose? Give me an application. Sign me up. So mm -hmm. people join that way, you know? And so, they, they, you know, they throw. So it could be economic. It could be because the town is like that. So you have to assimilate or it could be a family tradition. But either way, it all comes down to it's a learned, acquired mentality, and what can be learned can be unlearned. And that's where I come in. Yeah. 
and to join the group is because you got laid off only buys you time uh, to maybe make yourself feel better but it doesn't bring back a job to a city that right. everybody has so it's just offsetting pain basically <laughs> right exactly. well, and I, well you, you mentioned uh it's similar to a gang i, I guess i'd be curious because there are it seems like there's also similarities to cult being in a cult w would you say there is or not what is there a difference absolutely a lot of parallels there it is a cult because yeah. you are basically taking someone, reshaping their thought process. You're essentially brainwashing them into believing a lie that by virtue of the color of your skin, you are a superior person than anybody else. By, the vir by virtue of the color of his or her skin, they are inferior. Yeah. yeah. And I think what you're also saying is like something is wrong in this situation, but the people that are that feel that something's wrong, they're then just being exploited by somebody else. It's just changing hands on who's exploiting mm -hmm. them, right? Right. But they don't yeah. see that. You know, they they see um they they deal on a lot you know, with a lot of misfits. But that's not to say that everybody who joins a you know, I mean, we're talking about the KKK right now, but there are plenty of other white supremacist organizations, but they all work basically the same way. They thrive on the vulnerable, but that's not to say that everybody who joins these kind of organizations are, are unintelligent by any mm -hmm. means. You know, you, you know, you, you would see those kind of people particularly on, on shows like Jerry Springer or whatever. Okay. Mm. I know those people and yes, they are very unintelligent, but there are plenty who have doctorates who are highly educated but they are twisted in their mind when it comes to racial ideology because they've been brainwashed. You look yeah. at some of these other cults where you have people who are highly intelligent following these cults and, and the leader decides everybody should commit suicide. So they go, so they all go and commit suicide. You know, mm -hmm. and th these are intelligent, hardworking people. Yeah. Yeah. And sadly, some of them are judges and lawyers. Precisely, yeah. precisely. Yeah. And you know, so it's, it's the, it's the uh, charisma of that leader who has that ability to 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 uh inflict influence negative influence upon these people regardless of how much education they may have there's just something in them that something the person says appeals to their inner thinking yeah and, uh, and affects their perception yeah. and um as i said you know perception one's perception is one's reality whatever somebody perceives it becomes their reality even if it's not real it's their reality mm -hmm. and you cannot change anybody's reality if you try you're going to get pushback because that's all they know it's real to them yeah it's so, and it's existential too like it's a threat if you try and push exactly. in a bubble you are attacking them more or less in their mind okay so they're going to resist they're going to fight all right. I'll, I'll give you two examples, one hypothetical and one real. All right. If you want to to uh, to have somebody, if you want to affect change with someone, do not attack their reality. What you do is you offer them a better perception. And if they resonate with the perception or perceptions that you've offered, 
they will then change their own reality because their perception becomes their reality. Even though, you know, when you see my name in the press or the media, they'll say something to the effect, you know, black musician converts X number of KKK or white supremacists or whatever. No, that's not true. I did not convert anyone, not even one. All right. I am the impetus for over 200 to convert themselves mm-hmm. by my offering them a better perception that they resonate with. I, I, I cannot change their reality. They do that themselves, but I give them reason to do that. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's say, for example, uh, Jason, you have a, a seven or eight year old brother and he goes to a magic show with, with, a, with his buddies. And he comes home and tells you, Jason, you're not going to believe this. You know, this magician on stage, he asked for a female volunteer and 50 women raised their hand. And he picked one out of the audience, brought her up on stage. And he had her climb into this long box and put her feet out the hole at that end and her head out the hole at this end. And then he closed the lid. He took a chainsaw and went right down the middle, right through the bottom of the box. He cut her in half. And then he told her to, he told her to wiggle her feet, and she wiggled her feet. And you say, "Listen, it didn't really happen like that." Yes, it did. I saw it with my own eyes. I was there. You weren't even there. I saw it. You have attacked his reality, right? He knows he was there. He he knows what he saw. And how dare you tell him he didn't see that when you were not even there at the show? See, you've attacked his reality. He's getting mad. He's he's attacking you back. He's defending himself because you you're challenging him, right? And he says, and, and furthermore, after he cut it in half, he took the half of the box with the feet and he moved it over here to stage right. He took the half with the head and moved it over there to stage left. <laughs> and then he walked over there and he talked to the woman's head and she talked back to him. And then he brought the two halves back together. He did some abracadabra and then he opened the lid and she climbed out all back together. No blood. And you say, <laughs> and you say, now, listen, that's an illusion. No, it's not. I'm telling you, I saw it. I was there. I saw it. Again, you've attacked him. Now he's getting even more mad because how dare you tell him something when you were not there and he was there only 10 feet away and he saw it, right? You've attacked his reality. So rather than do that and cause a fight because he he's not going to change. He knows what he saw. You offer him a better perception. You say to him, listen, I understand what you're saying, but do you think it's possible that maybe, just perhaps, when he asked for a female volunteer and you said 50 women raised their hand and he picked one out of the audience, do you think perhaps it's possible that maybe the girl that he picked out, she works for him, she knows the trick, and she travels all around the country with him and always sits in that same seat in the theater, that way he can zero right right in on her and bring her up on stage? And then when he asks her to get inside the box, there's already a pair of dummy, of mannequin legs laying on the floor of the box. And they are wearing the same stockings and same shoes that she has on. So she she pulls her own knees up under her chest. So her whole body is on that half of the box. And she takes the poles of those legs and shoves them out the hole. So that way you think it's her feet out the hole. So when he cuts the box in half, the saw never even touches her. Her whole body is over there. And he says, wiggle your legs. She shakes them, right? Those those mannequin legs. And then when he separates the two halves, 
he doesn't want you looking at those legs anymore because now they cannot move. So he has to divert your eyes over mm -hmm. here, right? So he walks over there and talks to the head. Of course, your eyes are going to follow him. And, yeah. of course, and of course, she's going to talk back because her whole body is there. So then when he brings the two halves back together and opens the lid, she just pulls those dummy legs back out of the hole, leaves them on the, on the floor of the box, and she climbs out. And then your brother says, hmm, you know, that might be the only way that could happen. You see, you have offered him a better perception, and he has resonated with it, and he has accepted it and changed his own reality, rather than you try to force your reality upon him, mm -hmm. even though you know your reality is real yeah. and his is not. So I guess so, what I'm hearing from you is you open the door, but you got to let them walk in. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Is it so, always yeah. gentle? Is it always what? Is it always gentle? This, uh, this no. <laughs> sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Depending <laughs> upon upon how 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 invasive they feel you become in trying mm -hmm. to. I mean, well, no. If if you're offering them perceptions, yes, it, it, it can be very gentle. But 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 when you attack somebody's reality, it can it can result in an actual mm -hmm. physical violence. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is it, well, so, is that what you meant, Ivan? Like uh, gentle and. In terms of offering, because, yeah, there's been times where I let my emotions get the best of me and offering advice to somebody that I felt was in a, a toxic state and I was not so gentle and it didn't go so hot. So I was wondering about your uh, technique. If yeah, you have, uh, I mean, you know, you're frustrated because they don't see what you see and and you want them to see it. You feel like just taking their face and just opening their eyes <laughs> so they can see something. You know, you know, you know, whatever idea you're trying, you're trying to convey to them. But so it may be frustrating to you, but always, you know, understand that their vision is, has been a little more limited than yours. You've seen things that they have not seen. Mm. And so you have to put yourself in their shoes. You know, it may not be their fault that they have not seen those things. But the fact is, you've seen them. Like, for example... Um, and and ho hold me for a second. I, I want to tell you about the, about the real the real uh, situation where I, I just gave you a hypothetical with the magician. But I'll tell you a real example. Okay. Let me just di digress for a second. Um, I have I have performed as a musician in all fifty states. Um, as as a child, I traveled around the world, beginning at the age of three, because my parents were, were U.S. Uh, Foreign Service, State Department. So I was an American embassy kid living in different countries every two years. Today, as an adult, I travel the world again, giving lectures or musical performances. So when you combine my childhood travels with my adulthood travels, I've now been in a total of 62 countries on, uh, on six continents. So what does that mean other than I have a lot of frequent flyer miles and hotel points? <laughs> okay. What, what it means is I have been exposed to a wide variety of cultures, ethnicities, religions, um, colors of skin, ideologies, all kinds of things that we don't have here in our own country. All right. Now, all that travel does not make me a better human being than somebody else who has had less travel. But what it does is it gives me a better and broader perspective, perception of humanity 
than most people who've not been exposed to those things. So that's what I was saying in terms of, you know, you're saying, you know, you, you let your emotions get the best of you. Understand, they may not have had the exposure to certain things that you have. So you've got to come up with, devise new ways to expose them to these things vicariously. They have not had the the travel or the experiences that you've had to, to, to see, have your vision. Oh, okay. So you come up with ways vicariously to to show them. And they, you know, it can be frustrating. Um, so, you know, one, one of my very favorite quotes of all time is by the author uh, Mark Twain. His real name was Samuel Clemens, but Mark Twain was his pen name. Um, it's called The Travel Quote. And Mark, I'm going to quote it for you. Mark Twain said, Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so true. So I'm very grateful for the travel that I've had and the things that I've seen that I try to share with other people who may not have had those things. Um, so that's why I I try to be gentle with, with my conveying of uh, of perceptions. So the the real example is this this uh, this clan leader. Um, he was murdered, and I knew him very well. He had the largest clan group in the country at the time, and he was murdered back in two thousand seventeen. I knew him. I knew the murderer. I knew his whole family. You know, it was just a, a tragic situation. But anyway, um, I went to his funeral and I participated in his funeral. And not because I was supporting his ideology or his belief. He was a human being. And had had he lived for another year, he would have been out of the clan because he and I were becoming very, very close. And he was beginning to question his own perceptions. Or as you said, he was, he was he couldn't reconcile reconcile being friends with me and being in this crazy group right so but he was murdered anyway uh, I went to the funeral and um at the funeral I met his family his biological family his biological family had nothing to do with the clan they did not like the clan they could not understand why their son was in the clan he had three beautiful they're all adults he had three beautiful um sisters adult sisters. And um, so anyway, um, uh, his family knew that I I was being influential on their son, and they never met me. So they met me for the first time, and we you know we hit it off. They were very grateful, thanking me, and hoping you know that our friendship will continue. He'll come out, etc. So uh, anyway, um, his father began calling me uh, two three times a week because you know that was his only son. Um, and he was, you know, he, he's very upset. You know, he, he wants to talk to somebody, you know, who knew his son. Not He, he didn't want to talk to the Klan. He wanted to talk to me. And so, you know, I, I spend time with him on the phone, try to console him, um, you know, through his grief. And one day he called me. I was sitting right here in my living room. And uh, the phone rang. I picked it up. It was him. He was crying. The father was crying. And he told me he had a gun in his hand. And he was going to go and kill the person who murdered his son. I knew, oh my goodness, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing a murder in the, in the, in the process. Uh-huh. You know, I have to, I have to do something. So 
people people make their decisions um they, you know how how they how their brain is wired how we're wired um like for example let's say hypothetically jason may be wired for 80 percent logic and 20 percent emotion you jason i mean you or ivan may be wired let's just say for 80 percent emotion and 20 percent logic you know just how how we make our decisions how we feel or how we think um right now this person was making a decision to go and murder somebody based upon emotion. He felt this person took the life of my son, my only son. This person does not deserve to live. I am going to eliminate this person from the face of this earth, right? So I he's thinking with emotion, not with logic. So if I presented a logical argument to this person, as to why he should not do this, he would not he hear me because his, his whole perception was emotional, all right? If I said to him, listen, I'm going to use a logical argument. If I said to him, listen, don't do that because, you know, you're an old man already. You know, if, if, you, if you kill that person, you're going to get 40 years. You're going to die in prison. He wouldn't have cared because this person murdered his son. Mm -hmm. So... You know, that's all he's thinking about, full of emotion. He doesn't care how old he is, what he has, what the consequences are going to be. He's going to eliminate that person. So logic is not going to persuade that guy because he's thinking emotionally. So therefore, I must appeal to him with an emotional perception to combat his already emotional perception of, of wanting to take somebody else's life. So what I said to him, I said, listen, man, you're already old. If you do that, you're going to go to prison and you've already lost your son. He's not coming back. You have three beautiful daughters. You're going to lose them too. Because if you go to prison, you're not going to see them. He's out in the Midwest. All right. I said, they're not going to put you in prison right there in Missouri. They're going to send you to Rikers Island in New York or San Quentin in, uh, in uh, California. They're going to make it difficult for your family to come visit you. You're going to lose your three daughters. You've already lost one son. Do you want to lose all your kids? He loves his children. So he, so now he's thinking, oh, wow. Well, okay. He didn't do it because he didn't want to lose any more kids. I appealed to his emotion. Mm -hmm. right? And that perception brought him to reality. And that's why he did not go out and murder that person. Mm -hmm. So... When you know when I'm dealing with with people, and, and this you know this applies. I mean, today we're talking about racism and, and reconciliation, but it applies to any contentious thing. I mean, take take racism off the table. You know, there are a lot of other topics: abortion, nuclear weapons, uh, the war between uh, Iraq and uh, and and wherever, uh, Ukraine and Russia, global warming, the last presidential election, the upcoming presidential election, the uh, insurrection. These are all hot topics. All right. You might be on one side. Somebody else might be on the other side. Rather than try to force your reality upon them to change their view, listen to them, but then offer them other perceptions and allow them to to plant that seed, allow that to 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 uh, to grow within them. And you might see a, a change that, you know, that you would not expect.
Yeah, there are people caught up in lesser things that cannot meet. Like even a, a Democrat and a Republican now probably can't have lunch at scale. <laughs> right, you know, and you know, and, and it, it's crazy, man. You know, in in the last in the last you know uh, six years, because it's been uh, six years since since our last administration. Um, well, it's four years of, of that administration now, two years of this one. Um, We've never heard this before during anybody else's administration. Oh, I, I, I'm going to, to Thanksgiving dinner with my family. Um, but, you know, every, that's what everybody did. Even if, if some of the family were Republicans, some were Democrats. It didn't matter. You still had Thanksgiving dinner with your family. Yeah. But in the last six years, we've heard more and more, I can't go to Thanksgiving dinner with my family. I can't spend Christmas with my family because my sister voted for so-and-so and I voted for this one or my, yeah. or my father voted for that one. And I, you know, my mother voted for this, you know, I can't, I can't eat with them. Yeah. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life because yeah. look at it this way. Here's, here's the perception that I offer. No matter who becomes president, that person is only going to be there for a minimum of four years a maximum of eight years. How long have you been with your family? You've been with your family for decades. Are you going to throw away decades over somebody who's only going to be there for four or eight years? That's crazy. If Daryl Davis, and you look at me, I don't look white to you, do I? Okay. If Daryl Davis can go to a Klan rally and talk to these people and come out, can't you sit down at a dinner table with your brother or sister yeah. and, and have dinner? That's the perception that I offer them. I don't try yeah. to change the reality. I just give them that. Hey, I hope you're enjoying that amazing interview. Just wanted to mention that the reason this podcast exists is because Commonwalk, the affordable housing investment firm that I run, wants a full circle way to help our tenants. So if you can't study pain, then you can't overcome it. A clear financial example of that is a poverty cycle, right? If we can't identify the different markers, then we can't move through it. So Commonwealth, the affordable housing firm that I run, helps by the first leg, the financial. If you have affordable rents, then you could move forward in life, maybe get a new car, maybe uh, get a new relationship, rebuild a relationship, uh, because one of the biggest divorce rates uh, reasons is because of financial struggles. But we also help people that invest in our fund to build wealth. So if you want to be a part of our full circle initiative, then go ahead and join our fund, commonwalk.com slash fund. The link is right below, and I'd love for you to be a part of it. All right, let's go build communities together. I'll go ahead and let you get back to the interview. Catch you later. All right, so we've been naturally going into atrophy by our conversation about complacency. So let's jump into those questions. Uh, Daryl, how do you think a Christian, I, I want to double quote that because I'm not sure they're actually fully Christian, you know, a Christian KKK member got to such a perversion of truth of the Bible? Okay, that's an excellent question. And all I can say is, again, it comes down to the same thing, lack of exposure. All right. When I've traveled the world, I'm, I'm a Christian. All right. And to me, you know, the KKK claims to be a Christian organization, but it's not the Christianity that I know or that, you know, or that anybody else knows for that matter. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you something, you know, we, we grow up in this country and when we see pictures 
of, uh, of Jesus Christ, we see a white man with, uh, with blue eyes and either brown hair or blonde hair. That is, that is the image that we see of Christ in our churches around this country for the most part. However, when I travel the world, and there are Christians all over the world, when, when, when I'm in, um, in Ethiopia, for example, on the east coast of Africa, there's Christianity there as well. Christ is not, is, not a, is not depicted as a white guy with blonde or brown hair. He's depicted as an Ethiopian because people per perceive him as, as they perceive themselves. All right. In different countries, he is whatever they are. So I'm going to give you an example of um, this Klansman was, was riding in my car one day and he's sitting in my passenger seat and I'm driving. And we are talking about, um, about why they set fire on the cross. I'm asking, you know, why, why do you burn up the cross? You know, if you're a Christian organization, isn't that sacrilegious? Isn't it blasphemous? Oh, no, 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 Daryl. You know, we, we're using the fire uh, symbolically for two reasons. One, um, fire is a purifier. And uh, he says, you know, if you get a splinter in your finger, your mother takes a needle and puts it in the fire and then she digs it out. Um, yes, she's purifying the tip of the needle. So he says, symbolically, we use fire to represent the purity of the white race. And the second reason is because we are lighting the way for Jesus Christ. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, uh, hold on a second. You have a, a different Jesus Christ than I have. He goes, no, Daryl, there's only one Jesus Christ. I said, no, there are two. He says, what, is your Jesus Christ black or something? I said, no, he's not black. I said, but he's not white either. I said, I've been to Damascus, Syria, and I've been to the area where allegedly he walked, etc. I said, he appeared as one of those people. And those people that I saw over there, they were olive-complected. So if anything, he was olive-complected. He goes, okay, well, what's your point? I said, my point is you have a different Jesus Christ than I have. And he says, how do you figure? I said, because you said that you are lighting the cross because you are lighting the way for Jesus Christ. He goes, that's right. If you were a Christian, you would know he's coming back. I said, I am a Christian. I know he's coming back. However, here's the difference. You have to light the way for your Jesus Christ. My Jesus Christ lights the way for me. Who are you to light the way for Jesus Christ? Mm. And he got very quiet. He'd never heard that argument before. And he, I, I could tell his wheels were in his head, right? And a couple of moments later, he changed the subject. But within a few months, he quit the Ku Klux Klan based on that argument. Wow. He'd heard so much from an echo chamber that they're, they, the Klan, they, they're Christians. They are lighting the way for Jesus Christ. <laughs> so he's been brainwashed. Who is he, a mere human being, to light the way for Jesus Christ? The Bible itself says Jesus Christ is the light. So all of a sudden he realized that he's been told wrong. And based upon that perception, he changed. Mm. That became his reality. Amen. Rather than that telling, word. No, you're not the light, you know, yeah. but, you know or whatever. Well, it. and it, it sounds like in some ways they're trying to shape Jesus into their own image versus being shaped by Jesus' image. That's well, yeah. what I'm hearing. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, let's 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 look at, at Christianity, or, or Judaism, or Mormonism, or or, or whatever. Okay, or Catholicism. There are so many different denominations 
of that one denomination, okay, of that one religion. Like, in fact, uh, Martin Luther King probably put it best. He said that the most segregated time in this country is Sunday mornings between the hours of 11 a.m. and 12 noon, when everybody who calls themselves a Christian, they segregate. The Lutherans go here. The, the Baptists go there. The Methodists go there. The Presbyterians go back there. You know, they're, they're all reading the same Bible, but each one has interpreted the same verse in a different way. So, you know, that's why Christ, Christianity is so divided up in, into so many denominations. Same thing with, with uh, Catholicism. You have the conservative Catholics, the Reformed Catholics, you know, the Orthodox Catholics. Same thing with uh, Judaism. You have the Hasidic Jews, the Orthodox Jews, the Reformed Jews, and just the regular Jews or whatever. So each one interprets the Torah or the Talmud just a little bit differently. Yeah, I just wanted to make three quick comments on that um, before we jump into the next question. Uh, the denominations are definitely against God's word. It's uh, Jesus said, be of one accord. And so the division is clearly from the enemy to try to uh, corner us into sin. Uh, also wanted to say, it's been also scientifically proven what you said, that uh, Jesus had a darker complexion because of inherently where he stayed. Also, if you just think about it logically, when he would escape from Jerusalem, he would go to um, uh, Egypt to uh, until the heat died down. And so how would he hide somewhere if he's standing out like a sore thumb as a white person? in Egypt. Um, so let me see. And then also just, it's even just as a doctrinal level, people drawing white or even black like paintings, it's actually against God's word too, because the image of God is actually illegal according to God. So <laughs> it's also not his will to have that even be done. If anything, it's the Imago Dei, just every one of us are expressing his image. But to draw into the next thing uh, here, in your book, you mentioned uh, how, how an, a teacher essentially atrophied her brain with a bad decision. She brought in a Nazi leader to speak to your class, a youth group in uh, and, and class. And I was like, what do you think? Oh, my gosh. W what made her think that this was okay, this poor decision? It was actually a he, but um, the, the teacher. But uh, regardless, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think that was the best thing ever. I really do. I really do. Okay. So um, common thinking would would set would dictate that. Oh, you know, you can't do that. You know, you know, p p kids will be influenced and they'll go and join some Nazi organization. That's that's you know, common thinking or or what we perceive as common thinking. But actually, it worked to the opposite. It educated me that there's a problem out here, and I need to fix it. And that influenced me partially in, into doing what I'm doing today. And nobody, I can tell you right now, nobody in my class, you know, decided to go join the American Nazi Party. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but, you know, do, do people do that? Sure, people, people can do that. They can be recruited. They can be brainwashed by somebody espousing, you know, these crazy views and and giving false perceptions, and somebody goes, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, sign me up. It, it, can it happen? Of course it can happen. But, you know, today you would not find teachers doing that. I wish they would do more of that, because we need to be exposed 
to the problems that are out here that exist in society. Um, like for for example, <clears throat> when I was in school, when I was in high school, we were not taught that there were internment camps in this country for Japanese Americans. That was not in our history books. I did not learn that until I was in college. And I was incredulous. That can't be, no way. And my teacher said, my professor said, yes, it is true. I went and asked my parents. My parents said, yes. I'm like, why wasn't this in the book? You know, how come we're not learning this? This is history, this is school. You know, it's supposed to be preparing us to, 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 to educating us. So today, when you guys were in school, you probably learned that. It's probably in your books. I know it's in the books today. Kids are learning that. Uh, but, you know, you all may know about the Tulsa race riots. Mm -hmm. uh, those still are not in the history books in our country. I learned about it through my parents 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So why is yeah. it not in our history books? So I learned it watching Watchmen. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, <laughs> you know, but why is why are we not learning history in school? Every country has history, good, bad, ugly, and shameful. All those cards need to be turned face up on the table. And we address each one of those issues, and then we move forward. That's how, because, you know, for example, you know, you, you know, a lot of college campuses don't want to talk about racism on campus. Racism is a real thing. Anti-Semitism mm -hmm. is a real thing. Uh, LGBTQ is a real thing. You know, you know, whether you want to accept it or not is a different story. But at least talk about it because it does exist beyond the walls of your college campus. So you're you're supposed to be an institution of higher learning. You're supposed to be preparing your students to deal with what's in society beyond the school campus. These things are in society. All right. Women, um, uh, girls in school are not being taught that, hey, you know, when you come out and, and get a job, you may be as qualified, you may be more qualified than your male counterpart, but you're going to get paid less just because you're a female. You might get sexually harassed by your boss. What, what do you do? These things are not being taught, but yet these things happen after you graduate school. So let's not hide and turn a blind eye to what's out there. Nazism was out there. And I'm glad my teacher brought this guy in and let him spew all his nonsense because that way we could see man these people are crazy you know we need to <laughs> we need to yeah. fix this yeah. yeah but what's oh uh, sorry jason i'll let you after this what bothered me about that was he was essentially harassing you after class yeah and if somebody did that to my future children i would want to do something not so nice yeah. to that person <laughs> <laughs> well i did um you, know, <laughs> um you know i i encountered him eight years later you know and um you know he told me in in the class that he, he was going to ship me back to africa and so um when you know i sought him out eight years later and i approached him and he remembered me and i said i'm still here so i let him know that he failed you know but i had a long conversation with him and i got to learn his mentality and talking with him really helped me understand you know where he was coming from not that i agreed with them by any means but it let me understand the process of how these people think and now i know how best to address them and and those conversations have enabled me to help other people get out of those organizations and out of that mentality yeah i uh, liked how you 
boldly addressed him in the middle of a protest too one right. day. He was said, just who the hell do you think you are making permanent travel plans for me to go to Africa or anywhere right. else for that matter? That's right, exactly. So, you know, I got back at him. <laughs> so, well, I want to I want to hit atrophy from a different angle. Um, I when I the more that I learn about Martin Martin Luther King Jr. his writings, his actions, I feel like he is the model for how you deal with injustices and how you respond and how you change things. Um, but I don't necessarily get the sense, the Martin Luther King Jr. sense in today's climate i don't see those martin luther king juniors out there now it's a different approach i think it's an inferior one but what, what have we atrophied what, what would you say to that yes we've atrophied in in many regards uh we've come a long ways we've come a long ways but we still have a long ways to go we've we've become complacent and we've atrophied by through our complacency by not moving you know we've deteriorated certain things um now i will uh you know you may think oh you know, you know daryl's crazy why would he even say a thing like that but but hear me out for a second um speaking of history there was a time in in our country and i remember it uh when there when uh black history was not being taught in schools it was not being talked about at all um, it, everything was called American history, but for all practical purposes, it may as well have been called white history because, you know, white people were being given credit for things they did not invent and for places they did not discover. Um, so we fought hard for years to get our history into schools. We finally succeeded in getting one week and that was called Negro History Week. And it was put together by Carter G. Woodson. All right. So we had, so every week we, every year we had one week of black history. That was not enough. We kept on fighting and fighting and fighting. Finally, I remember when it came in, we finally got one month, February, and it was called Black History Month. Of course, they only gave us the shortest month of the year, right? <laughs> Twenty-eight days, right? You know, they were they were they weren't going to give us any, you know, thirty-one day month, right? So they gave, you know, but we 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 accepted it. Why did we accept the shortest month of the year? We accepted it because two of our heroes uh, had their birthdays in February. One was Frederick Douglass, and the other one was Abraham Lincoln. So both celebrate their birthday in February. So said, okay, we accept February. And then we became complacent, unfortunately. Uh, we, we, we stopped fighting. We were satisfied with February. Now, I'll, I'll say this. We needed Black History Month because no Black history is being taught. And, and Black history is a part of American history, just like Native American history, just like European American history. It's all what made this country, all right? So we needed that, and it's lasted a long time. But I would say this, it is time, it's been time for a long time now, and I've said this now for 24 years, it's time for us to get rid of Black History Month, all right? And people say, Daryl, how can you say that, blah, blah, blah. The reason I say that is this, it's time that we get rid of Black History Month 
and take that history and put it where it belongs, under the umbrella of American history. Because we only, because here, here's what's happening, through complacency and through atrophy. We, every year during Black History Month, Black kids, white kids, and whatever, whatever, whatever other kids become brainwashed into, into thinking that there's only a half a dozen Black people in this country that ever did anything. Because every year, they go over the same Black people. Uh, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman, Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, Malcolm X, or one or two other ones. And then they're done. Oh, you know, February is over. You know, we, we did our black thing. Let's move on. And they move on. But so we only study those same people in February every year. And when, when all you do is just study the same people over and over and over again with nobody else, then you were subliminally brainwashing people to thinking there was only a half a dozen black people in this country that ever did anything. What about the guy who invented the traffic light or the ironing board or other things? Oh, well, you know, we didn't have time for him. You know, we only have 28 days, right? So, but yet we study Benjamin Franklin, Eli Whitney, Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, all year long. You never forget who flew the kite and, and a lightning bolt hit the uh, key. Everybody knows that's Ben Franklin. It's automatic in our head. But if you only study Black people in February and, and, and you don't reinforce it through the year, then you come to June when people are graduating and you say, um, who was Harriet Tubman? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I remember, I remember. Okay, who was she? Um, she was that uh, that Black lady that, that refused to give up her seat on the bus. They got her confused with Rosa Parks because because there's no, there's no, my Google phone here. There's no, um, there's no uh, reinforcement. All right. So it's time to take black history and spread it out throughout throughout the school year into American history, just like Ben Franklin or anybody else. All right. Let me give you a prime example. I remember when I was a child, the Miss America pageant. All right. When I first started watching the Miss America pageant, they did not allow black women to complete to compete in Miss America. It was only for white women. Black women were not were not deemed beautiful enough. And back then, you only had male judges, white male judges. So they didn't want white men looking and, and saying this black woman is beautiful. All right. And back then, there were only like two categories that women competed in, the evening gown and the swimsuit. So they were being objectified, right? You know, they didn't have to write an essay or show any kind of talent. Women were not considered talent. You know, they were just you know, objects. All right. So no black women. What did that do for black women in this country? It gave them low self-esteem because they were considered lesser than these white women on stage who got to wear a crown for their beauty. They began thinking that they're not beautiful. So how did we elevate their self-esteem? We created the Miss Black America beauty pageant so that black girls could aspire to have something to, to, to look up to and, and rise to, right? So we had Miss America and we had Miss Black America. All right, how stupid is that? But that's what we had to do. So finally, finally, after all these years, Miss America, the big pageant, finally opened its doors to allow any American female, regardless of what color they were, to compete in Miss America.
And guess what? To date now, we've had like four Miss Americas who've been black, starting with Vanessa Williams, right? So now we don't need Miss Black America because now we're mainstream. When are we going to come to our senses and mainstream American history and include black history as part of the mainstream? Okay, when are we going to do that? That's what we need to do. All right. Black history is just as much a part of American history as anybody else. So when, when we do that, then kids will begin to appreciate and understand and be more accepting you know, uh, and receptive to it rather than isolated. Same thing I would say for Women's History Month. Women's History Month is is March, all right. Um, women do not stop becoming women uh, <laughs> after after March any more than I stop becoming black after February. Th think about how crazy this is. Barack Obama, um, your hero, all right, was the first black American president. Oh, but we can't talk about him in September. He's got to be talked about in February because he's part of Black history. He's part of American history, folks. <laughs> Come on, how dumb is that? Let's make Black history American history. Talk about it all year long. Talk about women all year long. Talk about Native Americans all year long. It's all American history. Let's stop segregating stuff. Yeah, amen to that. And it's not about making people feel bad, like uh, based on what their family history is. Uh, if right. They have to be Caucasian, it's about reflecting on the damages and atrocities and being able to say, oh, now I'm aware. Now I could work from this as opposed to stomaching it and hoping Amen. the best. Amen. Yeah. Amen. If we hide it, it's the same as saying we want it to happen again. Exactly. Yeah. You know, what, yeah. what, what is uh, what is the saying? Um, he who walks in silence um, uh, hangs the innocent and lets the guilty go free. Mm. You know? Um, and Martin Luther King said, it wasn't, uh, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, um, it's not the the words of his enemies that hurt the most is the silence of his friends. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Makes me think of somebody, uh, some quote I heard around the concentration camps of like, somebody said, why not burden these things down? They're such a horrible reminder. But then the guy responded, of course, they're a reminder of what we should never do again. Exactly. And that's why we have the Holocaust Museum. That's yeah. why we have the, the new uh, African-American History and Culture Museum in Washington, D.C., the Lynching Museum and all these other, you know, museums, they, they reflect history, the good, the bad, the ugly and the shameful. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's also still pretty bad today because, uh, I mean, until recent history, the KKK was still celebrating their yearly event at Stone Mountain, which is just yeah. minutes away from here. Um, uh, well, you know, let me tell you something. I, I know Stone Mountain very well. And the guy, the, the, the guy who, who, um, who put on that event, uh, his name was James Venable. And uh, James Venable was the imperial wizard of the Klan. Uh, he was also a lawyer there in Atlanta. He, he's dead now, but his house is still there in Stone Mountain. And um, I was down there a few years ago, and I went out and had lunch with his daughters. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, 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 that event that you're talking about um, was put on every Labor Day. And clan groups from all over the country would come to, uh, to Stone Mountain, and they light up, you know, the cross. Yeah, I was one, at one of those events protesting with a bunch of other civil rights groups uh, about five years ago or so. Uh-huh. Um, and then another thing that's kind of crazy that still happens until this day is that 
the laser light show at Stone Mountain still celebrates yeah. General, General Lee like he's some sort yeah. of hero to be celebrated. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, uh, let's get back into the next phase of this guilt. So, you know, for a KKK member, was a typical, if typical, turning point in somebody becoming disinterested in KKK membership. Well, you know, when when somebody has been inundated with that ideology for so long, and it's all they know, and they begin to realize this is wrong. It's not just a, like a light switch. They just flip a switch and boom, they're, you know, they're, they, they just you know, d- divorce themselves from this. It's a process because all their friends, all their, whether it's biological family or clan family, you know, that's their surrounding. And now they're, you know, they're, they don't know whether they should follow the truth or hang with their friends. Because if they follow the truth, they're going to be out there by themselves. Their friends are not going to come with them, right? So it's, it's a tough decision, you know, that they have to do. And so they may take a while to reflect on it, especially if they are leaders. I, you know, I have, I have impacted a lot of leaders in the clan who have left that ideology. They take a little bit longer than just somebody who's just a rank and file member. All right. Because as a leader, you have followers in the clan. How do you go to your followers? 200 people, 300 people, however many people, and say, hey, you know, I was wrong. I led you down the wrong path. You know, number one, it's an embarrassment. You feel guilty. Um, or do you continue living that lie, even though you know you're wrong and you don't want to give up that power? You don't want to, you don't want to give up that throne. Mm. You know, look, when you sat on the throne of power for 400 years, you don't want to get off. Mm-hmm. You look at our last president. He was only there for four years, and he thinks he's still there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. <laughs> he, he's definitely living in the alternate reality for sure. Right, right. <laughs> um, how did you stay objective against all the infuriating answers in, in your one, wonderful book, there's snarky commentary all the time, answers. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, because, you know, Ivan, I think truly the travel, it, you know, what we have going on here, a, a lot of people in this country who have not traveled, they think this is how it is all over the world. No, this is it's somewhat indigenous to this country. Yeah, other countries may have other problems. But what we got going on here is indigenous to us. And when when I was going to school, okay, my, my first exposure to school was overseas. As I told you, my, my dad and you know, mom were U.S. embassy. So uh, I started traveling at the age of three in 1961. I was born in, in, um, in 1958 in Chicago. Um, you go to a country, you're there for two years, come back home, you're here for a few months, you can go to another country for two years, back and forth, back and forth. I did kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, all in different countries. I came home in between. So my first exposure to school was overseas. My classes, my classmates were from all over the world. This person sitting here is from Nigeria. This person's from Japan. That person is from, you know, uh, Denmark, Australia, Russia, you know, wherever. 
whoever had an embassy where we were assigned, all of their kids went to the same school. So if that's if that's your first exposure to school, that becomes your baseline for what school is. Mm. And that's what, that's what you think school is supposed to be. But every time I come back home, after my parents' assignment, I'd be back here, I would either be in all black schools or black and white schools, meaning the still segregated or the newly integrated. And there was not the amount of diversity that I had in my classroom overseas, you know? So um, literally when I was overseas, I was living maybe 10 years ahead of my time, 10 years into the future, because that multicultural setting that was the norm over there had yet to come here to our country. Today, you walk into any high school in, uh, in or elementary school in Atlanta, you're going to see people from all over. But you would not have seen that in the 1960s. So yeah. I, was, I was already prepared for it. And I think, uh, so you asked, the question you asked me was, how do I remain so objective? Because I lived in, in an environment in which it worked. I know it can work. I lived it. They have not lived it. That's why I say they don't have my reality. Mm -hmm. So I can't force it upon them. I can only offer it to them vicariously and let them see through perception. Yeah. I guess what, um, in, in terms of the guilt, um, I'd imagine someone that's in the clan longer and who's done more, said more terrible things, done more terrible things, that guilt becomes harder over time or maybe it doesn't uh, how would you uh, how you know how does that guilt play a role in in um in those in the kkk it, it works both ways it, it can become more over time or it can become just who they are and they want to go out and do more and there's no remorse yeah you know, because they have so embodied it they've owned it you know yeah. and they and they feel that way so it, it can go either way uh, but I can tell you one thing, and perhaps, you know, if you guys would like, I can hook you up, you know, with, with some former uh, people and and they can talk about guilt. And I know yeah. one person where, you know, he, he he has done tremendously well getting out of that and doing things to help other people. Um, but he can never forget the things that he did while he was in and that hate that he embodied and all that stuff has just eaten him alive. I mean, he, he, he remains, you know, very ill from just um, atrophying, you know, with that guilt, you know, in there, he can't get rid of it. Uh, you know, we need to learn to forgive, you know, when somebody has shown remorse and redemption, yes, you know, they, 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 they pay a price for it and as they should, they should be penalized if they have done something to somebody else. But once they pay, you know, once they paid their dues and they've shown remorse and redemption and are making an effort to improve their life and the lives of others, then we need to work with them and forgive them and help them move forward. All right. Because yeah. that, that's a Christian thing to do, right? Yeah. So um, how does the does the Apostle Paul, is that a helpful um, figure to point to for those people? Oh, uh, sure. You know, all, 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 all 12 apostles, you know, each, yeah. each one had something different going on. Yeah. Well, I think of Apostle Paul because he literally, you know, persecuted Christians and then he became one. Yeah. 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 It's easy but, to forget that. And other folks, too. I mean, he talks about I was the chief of sinners. I was the worst of the worst. Right. Well, yeah. you look at um, at, uh, uh, well, you know, d down there in, in Georgia. I don't know if you uh, if, if you remember. Well, you don't remember him because he was dead probably before you guys were born. 
but his name was uh, Lester Maddox. Do you know that name? That sounds familiar. Maddox sounds familiar. Yeah, l- look up Lester Maddox. Okay. Sometimes. Um, uh, but anyway, there, there was a um, governor of uh, Alabama. His name was George Wallace. And Governor George Wallace was a very, very racist governor. Uh, he's mm-hmm. the one who stood in, in the schoolhouse door and would not let the black kids get in and mm-hmm. said segregation today, tomorrow, and forever. And President, oh, wow. yeah, President Johnson had to send the National Guard to remove Wallace out of the door and escort the black kids into the schools when integration came in. Um, Governor Wallace was running for president of the United States, and he was on a campaign tour, and he did a stop right here in Maryland about uh, 20 minutes from my house. And uh, he was in a shopping center uh, parking lot giving a speech, you know, and he got shot. I shot him. And um, for the rest of his life, he remained in a wheelchair. But he had the chance to reflect. And he apologized and uh, and renounced uh, his racism. But a lot of people don't remember that. They remember all the bad things that he did. Mm. Yes, he was a bad person, but he saw the light eventually. Yeah. yeah. So how do you uh, reconcile that dynamic of, uh, oftentimes we can sort of dismiss uh, bad behavior, call it forgiveness. You know, you just need to forgive them when there's no remorse versus when there's remorse, it's, it seems pretty obvious. And I think people tend to be more open to that as long as it's sincere. But sometimes there is a push in society, like just forgive them, even when there's no remorse. So how do you navigate that dynamic? I have a hard time forgiving somebody who does not um, see the wrong or the, uh, I mean, it's not that I'm going to go out there and beat them up or something like that. Yeah. But um, I, I I don't let them slide. That, yeah. That's with me personally. I do know people who do forgive, you know, even though somebody has not, you know, given remorse. And I think it's how they they deal with their own grief. Mm-hmm. I'm going to forgive that person and I'm going to move on with my life. Yeah. Know, everybody has their own way of, of dealing with it. Um, you know, some people believe, you know, if, um, you know, you, you punch me on this side of my face, you know, turn the other cheek and you can punch me on that side. You know, if you punch me on this side of my face, I might punch you in your face. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it can work both ways. Yeah. For a KKK member to leave, it could be good to observe how they joined. What sort of people were targeted to join the KKK members? Um, people who show a an affinity uh, for one culture, you know, one you know one uh, one superior race. You know, see, they believe in races. Anybody with any sense of intelligence knows there are no races. There's only one race. It's the human race. We all are part of the human race. There is no black race, white race, etc. There's a black color, a white color, a, you know, red color, yellow color, whatever color. But it's only one race of different colors, you know. But they consider different colors to be different races. Uh, they even consider Jews to be a race, you know, or whatever. Um, so they target people who have similar thinkings. They target people who are vulnerable, who who feel um, they don't have a place in society. Come join us. We'll be your family. And then they give them positions. They give them certain titles, exalted cyclops, great titan, great grand dragon, imperial wizard, etc. It makes them feel important. 
And so this becomes their family, their, you know, their brotherhoods, a fraternity. Or, uh, same thing with women. You know, now women are allowed to join, but women are still subservient within the clan. They cannot rise to the top levels. Um, so they make you feel important. They welcome you in. And uh, and people people um, people go for that because they want to belong to something. They want to feel important. They want to feel that 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 they have family who will back them up. Yeah, so that's that's who they target. But right now, um, this is nothing new. They've always done this, but but now they are really ramping it up. They are targeting more and more law enforcement officers and military. Um, when you when you've been in the, they, they figure if you've been in the military for two years, that's the time to target them. Uh, people who are coming back from um, Afghanistan and Iraq, okay, with with two years of service, because at two years they feel that you are not quite loyal to the government. A lot of these groups are um, are anti-government, and so if you're in the military for two years, you're not a hundred percent loyal to the government. After two years, you're committed. Don't target them. But at two years, you've had the training in survival tactics. You've had the training in weapons. You're the ones we want. Come join us. You know, how can you be over there, you know, you know, fighting for that country? You know, be a patriot. Come fight for your own country. You know, people are taking over this country who don't even look like you. They're coming in from South America. They're, they're, they're rapists. They're murderers. They're bringing in drugs and all this other stuff. You know, coming in from Mexico, coming in from West Africa, et cetera, et cetera. Um, come fight for your country. Be a patriot. Oh, you know, hmm. Uh, um, well, there's, there, there's something about being pursued that makes us feel valuable too. Yes, right? exactly, exactly. You know, I, I, I feel wanted. I'm needed. I'm needed. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I love my country. I'm a patriot. Okay, so here they are, and they come with the weapon training and the survivalist training. All right. Um, so you that you know, and, and we saw a lot of that during the insurrection. We saw police officers attacking other police officers. We saw military people, veterans. All right, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, mm. that's you know we we they've always done that, but now it's been ramped up more and more because wow. let me let me tell you what's going on in this country. This is something that the media does not talk about so much, um, but I I I've known about it. And in fact, that same Nazi guy who came to my school that you talked about, okay. Of when I encountered him later on, eight years later at, at the protest, I had a long talk with him. And this was in 1982, the second time I encountered him. The first time I encountered him was 1974. In 19, I've learned this. I've known this since 1982, thanks to him. Okay, so let me give you background here. This country was built on a two-tier society. White supremacy at the top and slavery at the bottom. And as we progress through the decades, we progress like this, maybe like this, but never like this. All right. Mm -hmm. So when I'm 65, as I pointed out several times, when I was a kid, the black population in this country was 12 percent, Native Americans, 1 percent, Latino, Hispanic people, almost 2 percent, uh, Asian Pacifica people, Americans, almost 3 percent. Whites were anywhere 80, 86, 87%. All right. The U.S. census is taken every 10 years, every decade. So the last census taken was 2020. All right. Today, Native Americans remain at 1%. They have not grown. Black people 
remain, Black Americans remain at 12%, or they say 12.9, so they call it 13%, all right? So we really have not grown. Um, uh, Asian Pacifica Americans are almost at 6%. Hispanic Latino Americans have more than quadrupled, 17 point something percent. So if you take just 12% Black, 17% um, Latino Hispanic, that right there is 29% um, non-white. This is happening. It is well predicted in the year 2042, which is only 19 years from now, for the first time in the history of the United States, this country will be 50-50. 50% white, 50% non-white. Between 2045 and 2050, it's going to flip. And for the first time in the history of this country, whites will become the minority. Now, there's a vast number of white people in this country who don't care. They say, hey, that's evolution. No big deal. doesn't bother me. And they're right. Okay? But there's also a slice of this population that does care. And those are the people that I deal with. And they tell me, Daryl, I don't want my grandchildren to be brown. They call it the browning of America or white genocide through miscegenation, through race mixing. And they're very concerned about that. And they're trying to stop that. And they're trying to do it by initiating what they call Rahoa, R-A-H-O-W-A. Look it up. Uh, that's, that's the first two letters of these three words, racial, holy, war, Rahoa. Okay. It's also known as the Boogaloo. So if you hear somebody referring to the Boogaloo, they're not talking about the dance from the 1960s. <laughs> so they're talking about the, the race war, okay, or Rahoa. Um, so that's what that's what they that's what they're looking to do in order to stop this from happening. And a lot of that reason is why the Capitol insurrection took place. You know, when you you saw the guy walking through the Capitol rotunda with the Confederate battle flag, you yeah. saw the guy in the Capitol rotunda with the Camp Auschwitz T-shirt on. You don't have to ask them what they want. That's what they want. That's what they want to take the country back to. We're going to take our country back. They want to go back to that. All right? And how many people did you see insurrecting the Capitol that looked like me? Were there, were there some black people there? Yeah, there's some black people there. Some of them were onlookers because D.C. is two-thirds black, so people are going to be there you know, trying to find out what's going on. But you didn't see them in there breaking through windows, tearing down doors, and acting all crazy, you know. Um, they felt that the last uh, president, President Trump, um, had given them license. Mm -hmm. and, and they were emboldened, yeah. right? And so they felt that all that they had gained in those four years that he was there, they were going to lose it all unless mm -hmm. they reinstalled him as president. So they had to put him back in office by hook or by crook, even if they had to hang the vice president. Okay? That's what the insurrection was all about because they're trying to stop what's going to happen in 2020. Mm -hmm. so I'm sorry, you, 2020, you, 2042, I'm sorry. Yeah, so do you, uh, what what I expect, and I, I think what lines of that is, the closer we get to that, the more, the more conflict and even potentially violence that we're going to see yes. as, as we get closer to that. Yes, and, th and let me elaborate on that a little bit because this is very important. You know, I I've been doing this now for 41 years. And when I first started this work, there was the Klan, there was uh, white power skinheads, and there were neo-Nazis. That was basically it. 
I may have a few other little sanctuaries, but that was basically it. Today, you got the Klan, the white power skinheads, the neo-Nazis, the alt-right, the Patriot Front, the one percenters, the three percenters, the Vanguard, the National Alliance, on, 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 and on. And all these groups are saying, come join us, come join us. You know, we're going to take our country back. And people out of fear of having their 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 identity erased. Because, you know, like I said before, you know, they, they feel like, you know, we discovered this country, we built this country, we wrote the Constitution, and now people are coming here who don't look like us and squeezing us out of our own country. So people out of fear of being erased are running and joining these groups. But when the group fails to take the country back, some of these people, they get frustrated and anxious. And they say, you know what? If uh, if the Klan can't do it or the, or the alt-right can't do it, I'll do it myself. And they walk into a black church, boom, 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 or into a synagogue, boom, 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 Buffalo grocery store, uh, the Walmart in El Paso, the Sikh Indian Temple, Oak Creek, Wisconsin, or the dollar store in Jacksonville, Florida the other day right? These people who are doing this are looking for Rahoa. They are called lone wolves. They're acting on their own. As we get closer and closer to 2042, you're right, we're going to see more and more of these lone wolves, which is why we have to be more proactive than reactive, um, because these people are becoming unhinged. They really think they're doing their patriotic duty to save their country. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, look at like, you know, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that we finally, finally began calling these people terrorists, domestic mm -hmm. terrorists. The term terrorists for the longest time in this country was wrongfully only applied to people who looked Middle East. Yeah. Right? yeah. So when, when somebody who looked like the average American uh, behaved in this fashion, um, Oh, that person is suffering from some mental uh, illness, you know, something like that. Anybody who goes around and commits murder <laughs> is suffering from mental illness, but it's mental illness slash terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the terror um, has an effect, right? We are fearful people. So how would you advise people to not allow the terror to drive submission to these groups? by providing more exposure and education, by allowing that Nazi to come into your classroom and show you how stupid he is. So you'll learn how to address it and how to deal with it and come to the realization, if you turn a blind eye, does not mean it does not exist. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like COVID. You know, there are people who turned a blind eye to COVID made jokes about it, inject yourself with bleach, all kinds of other nonsense. Uh, it took out quite a few people. Yeah. Wow. Ivan, where do you want to go next? Uh, there's so many <laughs> places we can go. Um, I want to be respectful of time, too. Um, Daryl, would you be okay if we go an extra 15, 20 minutes more? Sure. I'd be glad to. Okay. Uh, thank you for that. So, um, wow. The, the biggest thing you shared is... Uh, the KKK and other hate groups have a customer avatar, which is essentially identifying a person and their weaknesses, their entire life journey, and the sales cycle. So essentially, you know, like you said, two years in the military. So not only their mentality, but what they're doing in their life actively. 
and their close rates. Like, oh, if we get this person right at this moment, then we got we could close them into a membership. So essentially, it's important to note that they have a plan. So you, especially as a minority, should have a plan for situations like what he just described, you know, these uh, lone wolves that could cause serious damage. It's also interesting to note when I did research, I think it was an FBI database. The, the biggest quantity of terrorist acts was actually committed by white people in terms of the quantity of people killed in one sitting. Uh, over history of our country has been by white people. So a lot of folks may not know that. Um, and so, man, I wanted to bring this up. It's kind of a delicate topic. And I might get canceled. <laughs> but one thing... That... If, if, you, if you get canceled, it's because you're doing something right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one thing I hear that kind of makes irks me when I hear a white per person say is... Well, these black communities, like my hometown, Chicago, you know, they, they have black on black crime. So they're they're just doing wrong. They don't know what what their mind is. Their mind is wrong. So we are doing things right. And they just kind of have this weird high level perspective that doesn't take into account that white people had a 400 year head start on wealth. Right. We're not and traumatized. We're not beaten all the time and had like so do you have comments on that daryl yeah and, and another thing they will say is you know all, all these places have a uh, democratic uh, leader leadership oh yeah and, and and that's all that kind of stuff right uh i'm from chicago too by the way but um besides the point um to to negate that democratic leadership uh if, if i'm not mistaken uh jacksonville florida where the guy walked into the dollar store and shot three black people because he hated black people um, has a Republican leadership. I believe the governor of um, of uh, Florida is a Republican, mm -hmm. right? Um, Ron DeSantis. So yeah. that so that negates that all this crime mm -hmm. is happening in um, in in uh, black communities yeah. and uh, and and led by by Democratic leadership. I'm not saying one leadership is better than the other. I'm just pointing out the flaw yeah. in that in that thinking. And and now you mentioned black on black crime. Um, there's no such thing as black on black crime, and let me explain that to you. Do do black people commit crimes against black people? Sure. Do white people commit crimes against white people? Sure. But you never hear the term white on white crime. Okay. Um, crime, or, or what or what is being referred to as black on black crime, is actually a crime of opportunity. All right. Why why do you see so many black people? attacking other black people it's a crime of opportunity for example if you were in a black community and and you needed money to buy drugs or you needed money for whatever reason you're not going to go all the way across town and attack some white guy you're going to attack the person closest to you so it's a it's a, it's a crime of proximity all right um take bangor maine bangor maine is predominantly white so all the crime up there is white on white crime but you don't call it that you just call it a crime but see they they want to label it because it denigrates people of color uh i'm, I'm going to give you an example some true true example it's a long time ago back in the 90s this clansman again I, I do a lot of riding around with clan people in my car uh anyway this one 
uh, exalted cyclops was in my car and we got we got on the topic of black on black crime all right and he and he was saying that um um all um all black people and i've heard this a million times since all black people have a gene within us that causes us to be violent i'm driving he's sitting over here and i said you know what are you talking about and he said well who's committing all the carjackings and drive-bys in southeast he was referring to southeast washington dc which is a predominantly black quadrant in washington dc there's some white people that live there but it's predominantly black and it's very high crime ridden all right i said okay it's black people i said but that's what lives there you're not considering the demographics i said who's doing all the crime in bangor maine white people because that's who lives there you know he says no 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 demographics have nothing to do with it you, you all are born with that gene and i said i'm as black as anybody you've ever seen i have never done a carjacking or a drive-by how do you explain that he didn't even hesitate one second he answered me like that he said your gene is latent it hasn't come out yet it almost <laughs> came it, it almost came out but uh, <laughs> but, but uh you know i was so dumbfounded i had no no response i mean he what he said was just so far out i couldn't even grasp it and 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 and, and re, you know and, and rebut it you know re, rebut it um so i i was speechless for a second he's sitting over here all smuggling you know you got nothing to say so i thought about it okay well he can't come to my level i got to go to his level so i said you know all white people have a gene within them they're born with a gene within them that makes them a serial killer. And he said, how do you figure? I said, name me three black serial killers. He thought about it. He couldn't even name one. <laughs> nice. I, I, said, I said, I said, here, I'm going to name one for you. I named one for him. I said, here, I'm, I'm going to give you one. Now, just give me two. He couldn't even give me two, right? I said, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, Albert DeSalvo, uh, the Boston Strangler, uh, David Berkowitz, Son of Sam, Ted Bundy. I said, they're all white. I said, son, you're a serial killer. He said, Daryl, I've never killed anybody. I said, your gene is latent, hasn't come out yet, <laughs> right? He, he goes, he goes, well, that's stupid. I said, well, duh. I said, I, I said you're right, it is stupid. But it's no more stupid for me to say that about you than what you said about me. And he got very, very quiet. Because, again, he had nothing to say. It was less than a year, less than half a year, actually. He quit the Klan. His Klan robe was the first Klan robe that I ever got. How, uh, just real quickly, how how if, if people are reaching out to people that are in some of these hate groups, what's a proper expectation of how long something like that could take? Um, there is no no answer to that question truly yeah um because it all depends upon how ingrained um that person has has become with that ideology again if it's uh if it's a if you're born you know you're not born with it but you can be born into it like you yeah. know, your family your, your dad inherit it yeah inherit it right um you know do you want to depart it's like you know if if you're jewish 
and your and your grandmother was kosher and your parents were kosher um you might be kosher too even though you may not even know what it means you yeah. know or, or or why they were kosher some people you know well my grandmother used to be kosher i'm not kosher you know well how how do they get out of it i'm not mm -hmm. saying it's right or wrong it's, it's neither um but uh you know depends upon the individual I, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen people change in a few months i've seen them change in a few years yeah i think part of it is like i think some people might get discouraged like after a few months or even a, a few years and feel like they give giving up but i'd want them to know like sometimes it could take longer yeah 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 and we and we have to be patient you yeah know, we have to be patient and let somebody grow into it because you, you know you know what listen they didn't become racist overnight you know so you know it, it, they, they may become racist over time it's it's like it's like um somebody who's overweight like myself all right i used to be slim and trim um i didn't put on this weight overnight there's no magic <laughs> pill pill i can take that's gonna make me lose it by tomorrow morning right? <laughs> so you know i just gotta bide my time do the right thing diet exercise you know whatever um and gradually it goes off yeah i i know that the previous point was a, a big tangent but i i was trying to get at the point of like if, if you over the last 400 years essentially minorities have been treated to a large extent like animals and there's been a huge wealth disparity too and i was able to find an article that basically says um in middle class neighborhoods uh, minority uh, homicides are, are four times higher than like in equivalent white neighborhoods. Um, so I'm I'm just trying to get at the point of like, what do you expect people to act like if they're hurt severely over generations? Do you expect them to just act normally versus act in a cyclical trauma repeat repeating state? It seems natural to me for that to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's a cliche that has been around for centuries and uh and it still exists today it's true misery loves company hmm. you know uh, if if um you know if if you're constantly being being beaten um beaten down you know you're going to react that way um i mean one of the most cruel things that you know that we see happening uh are dog fights dogs being trained to kill another dog and then people put them in in a in a ring or something and and have them fight and people bet on on which dog is going to win uh how, how do you train that dog they, they take him and they beat the dog and make him more and more mean you know and then he goes in there and attacks the other dog well you know you, people react the same way yeah exactly um you know in um back during the uh the the vietnam uh war uh a lot of prisoners um pow's you know when when they were so, when some of them were finally released that they didn't die uh they would come back and tell horror stories of, of how they were treated in these pow camps and you know prisoner of war camps um they were made to crawl around and eat their food off the floor they were treated like a dog they were told to bark and some of them you know thought they were dogs you know after a while yeah it's and a brainwashing exactly in, in a and sense. then the support system around it too um, this article mentions uh, black families have systematically lower household wealth than white families, including lower home values. In addition, there tends to be less public and private investment in majority black neighborhoods. 
that can translate into fewer resources in the neighborhood, especially relative to need. For example, lack of resources for programs for adolescents and young adults that can help them uh, avoid, for example, gangs or street conflicts. Look at uh, look at cocaine. Okay, uh, <clears throat> at one time, uh, cocaine was a was a was a very expensive drug uh, to to acquire. Uh, most cocaine what you would see used in in uh, in higher class people. Uh, white neighborhoods, white collar type people. It was their drug of choice. All right, and then a cheaper, um, less expensive uh, drug made from cocaine was created called crack. Right, you remember crack, right? Mm -hmm. And do you know the penalty for possession of crack is higher than the penalty of cocaine? Oh, and you know that. Uh, yeah, you look it up. And do you know why? Uh, you know, you might get you might get uh, two years for for some amount of, uh, of of cocaine in prison, but you'll get ten years for that same amount of crack. Even even though crack is not as pure as cocaine, uh, you know, it's cheaper because who buys the cheaper drugs? Black people they don't have the money to buy the pure cocaine. Oh. They buy the crack. So there's more crack among black people or, or poor white people. So that way we can lock them, uh, put more black people in prison. Yeah. And that's a whole nother episode we could focus on. How yeah, yeah absolutely. Higher Ab <laughs> every other people group. Exactly. And yeah, that's definitely racism right there in effect. Um, that's the uh, systemic part of it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So what kind of support does a KKK member need to leave membership? Uh people like us to uh to 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 be an anchor to to have to have this this pillar of strength because you know they're going to be rejected they they cannot go back to to the group that they left because they left renouncing that group um if they if their biological family is, is uh, are racist they don't want them anymore because you betrayed not only have you betrayed your adopted family, you betrayed your biological family. If your biological family was not racist and you and you became you you became a KKK member or whatever, you've upset them. You know, you, you've you, you've betrayed them as well. You've embarrassed them. You know, my, my son's the grand dragon of the clan. <laughs> Nobody wants to deal with your family anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, your friends who, who are not members, they don't want anything to do with you because there is a stigma that that is attached to that. Okay. Um, like for example, you and I are friends and, and, uh, I call you tomorrow and I say, Hey man, uh, uh, Ivan, you know, I, I was out last night and I was drinking, having a good time and I was on my way home and I got pulled over and, and the cop arrested me for, for DWI. I, I blew, you know, whatever point and I was way over the limit and I, I got a ticket and he, he locked me up. I couldn't drive my car and uh, I went to jail and, I had to get bailed out this morning. You were still going to be my friend. Okay, so Daryl, you know, he shouldn't have been drinking. He should not have been driving. And he got pulled over. He got arrested. But you're still going to be my friend. Mm -hmm. All right? But if I tell you, uh, Ivan, uh, I, I got arrested last night for murder and I and I raped somebody, <laughs> you might be like, okay, that's it. <laughs> yeah, we're, <laughs> we're done. <laughs> you know? Okay? So, you know, th there's a bigger stigma. and there And there's a stigma to being... A, a a white supremacist. There's a stigma to being a former white supremacist. 
okay? Because every time your name appears in the media, it doesn't just say, um, uh, you know, um, John Smith, blah, blah, blah. It always says ex-white supremacist John Smith, ex-Klan leader John Smith. Mm-hmm. It, it's always prefixed by that. So it's something that, you know, that they, can, they cannot escape. And, and it, you know, it's damaging. You know, how, how would you like it if, um, you know, you spent 10 years in prison for whatever it is you did, you uh, forged a check, you, you robbed a convenience store, whatever. Okay, you paid your dues, you made your amends, blah, blah, blah. But every time you're out there, it always says, ex-felon, so-and-so. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, so they, they need that kind of support because that stigma is going to follow them around for a long time. Gotcha. And if you don't have that person and you're watching, we'd be glad to support you. Just leave a comment. We'll figure out how to support you in your uh, exit. Um, To add to more your perspective, how does one generate a healthy defense mechanism for racism, not throwing off your day or your life? Okay. Know who you are. Know who you are. And do not, you know, don't go into a meeting with somebody like that. Uh, without knowing who you are, because if you don't know who you are, you go in there, they're going to tell you who you are. <laughs> yeah, you might leave there. <laughs> you, you might leave there believing them. So know who you are going in. Know that you're going to hear things that you don't want to hear. You're going to be offended, etc. But understand that person does not know you. So I'll give you an example of something. Okay, so when I'm sitting there interviewing these people, um, I'll say, you know, I, I don't know these people. I mean, I just met them for the first time walking into the room to be interviewed, right? So I'm, I'm just seeing them as soon as they come in the room for the first time. And, you know, one of the questions I ask is, you know, how can you hate me? You know, you don't even know me. Well, Mr. Davis, you have to understand something. You know, you know black people are prone to crime. And, um, you know, that's why there are more blacks in prison than, than white people. So essentially, this guy is calling me a criminal, right? He sees my black skin. He's telling me that I'm, I'm a criminal. Now, he is 100% right that there are more blacks in prison than white people. And, and, that, and his, his assertion about that is supported by the data. The data shows that there are more blacks in prison than white people. But the data does not show why there are more blacks in prison. You know, so so all, all he needs is that data support. He doesn't bother to find the reason. Yeah. If he bothered to find the reason, he'd find out, well, the, ju- the uh, judicial system is imbalanced. Mm-hmm. That sends blacks to prison for longer terms than white people who committed the same crime, right? Yep. So he, he stops right there with the data. doesn't look, look any further. And then he goes on to say, now, so he's called me a criminal. I'm just sitting here listening to him. And, um, and then he says uh, that black people are inherently lazy, uh, that we, we, we're always trying to scam the government welfare system. We always have, have our hand out for a freebie. And then he says this. This one gets me all the time. Um, that uh, that black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. Oh my gosh! Okay. <laughs> no. Yes, yes, yes. And, and and let me prove it to you. Okay. Uh, he he says that 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 this is evidenced by the fact that every year, um, black kids score lower on high school SAT scores than white children. He is one hundred percent correct. That, that does happen. The uh, statistics and data do show that. All right. Um, so now he's called me a criminal. He tells me that I'm lazy. I'm on welfare. I don't want to work. And now I'm stupid. And, and because he says that the lower, the, uh, the smaller the brain, 
the less capacity for intelligence and the lower the IQ. The, the larger the brain, the more capacity for intelligence and the higher the IQ. So I'm being told that I'm stupid. Now, <laughs> that, that, I can't, now I okay. can't. how did you not punch him, bro? What, 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 but, but see, but hold on, but see, this is exactly what I'm doing. You, you, you're laughing at the notion. So as he's saying this to me, I'm not laughing out loud in his face, but I'm laughing inside. Yeah. Because I realize, just like you are, you know, I'm, I, yeah, I, I, you know, wow, you know, this guy's really out there, right? <laughs> now, but now, but now he, he, here, here, this is very crucial. Is what he is saying to me offensive? Yes, it's absolutely offensive. Now, here's the caveat, right? Am I offended by it? Absolutely not. Why am I not offended by that? Because it's not true. Why would I be offended by a lie? This man doesn't know me. He just walked into my room five minutes ago. All he sees is the color of my skin, and he decides that I'm a criminal, I'm, I'm on welfare, I'm lazy, and I'm stupid because my brain's that small. Okay? Why should I be offended by that? Why should I let him dictate how I feel? All right? I'm a, that's why I said know yourself. Know who you are. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know you. Now, if, if my mother or my father were to say, Daryl, you know, I think you're kind of prone to crime. You know, you're a little sneaky and stuff. <laughs> you know, you know, okay? You know, <laughs> maybe I would believe them because they brought me into this world. They raised me, right? Or <laughs> That would be such a silly statement from your father. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay? So, I mean, you know, if, if your friends tell you something, you know, be a little more considerate because, you know, they know you or your family tells you something about yourself. You know, they know you. They raised you, right? Yeah. Um, but but somebody who doesn't know you, and he's he's going to tell you, you know, I I I I think that Jason, man, he's definitely into crime because you know <laughs> all, all, all 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 people with curly hair and a beard, you know, they you, yeah. know, they, you know. So I mean, how ludicrous is that? So if I were to say that to you, are you going to be offended and want to punch me out? No. You know, if 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 you're feeling insecure, then yes, you probably yeah. would. Yeah. But you but you know who you are. Yeah. So. Don't be offended by somebody else's lie, right? So just so I just sit back and I listen to them. And then when they get done, because this is very important too. When somebody like that walks into a room and they see you, their blood pressure goes up. Their wall goes up because you are the enemy, you know, and they are on the offense. You know, they're, you know, they're ready to attack. All right. So, um, you know they don't want to hear anything you have to say. They are they are the the, the superior ones. That's why they're called supremacists. Their ears are shut to anything that you're going to say that's going to contradict what they have to say. So you're telling them anything to to the contrary is is going to be talking to a brick wall. They're going to shut you out. Mm -hmm. All right. So in order for for them to hear you, that wall and that blood pressure has to come down. All right. So usually. Just like you said, you know, somebody says that to you, you know, you're going to be ready to punch them out. Okay. So, yeah. So when that happens, then the whole conversation devolves and it's over. Yeah. You know, nothing gets accomplished. So I just sit back listening to this guy because I know he doesn't know me. You know, that, that's his perception of me. I know who I am. I don't have to worry about my brain being small because <laughs> I know that I, I know that he dropped out of high school and I have a college degree. So what am I worried about? My SAT, my SAT has got me into college. I got a college degree. He didn't go to college, but I'm not going to throw that in his face because you know that's just going to you know bring his wall up, right? Yeah. So I just sit back and listen to him, 
And then at the end, when he gets done exhausting all this vitriol, his wall is down because he's used to pushback. He's used to saying those things, pushing those buttons and getting resistance. But he's not getting that from me. So his wall is coming down. Mm -hmm. And by the time he gets done, his wall is down and he's curious why I've not reacted to him. So now he wants to hear why, how I feel about what he said. Mm -hmm. So rather, now I have every right to go on the offense and attack him verbally for what he said. You know, but if I said, you know, no, you're the criminal. You're the one hanging black men from trees and dragging them behind pickup trucks and shooting up their churches. And I would be 100% correct. The mm -hmm. Klan ha has, a, has a history of that, right? Yep. But that, that would cause the wall to go right back up and the ears to shut down. All right. So rather than go on the offense, I go on the defense. I say, you know, I hear what you're saying. However, I, I'm black. I don't have a criminal record. I've never been on welfare. Oh, and by the way, um, my SAT scores were high enough that they got me into college. I have a college degree. I don't say you don't have one. You know, I just say, mm -hmm. hey, you know, my SAT, my SATs, you know, got me into college. I have a college degree. Um, so that just lets him know, you know, that everything I said refutes everything that he believed. All right. So now he has to think about this, right? So I, I've not attacked him. I've simply defended myself, right? And so this is how you, he heard me. And then what happens is this, the person goes home and they think about, you know, what transpired during the day. Just like at the end of the day, you guys are going to think about the conversation that you had with me today, you know, before you go to bed, you're going to reflect on it. Mm -hmm. They reflect upon, upon our, our, our conversation as well. And they think, hmm, you know, I just had a three hour conversation with a black man and, and we didn't come to blows. You know, and, and what that guy said, that Daryl Davis guy said, you know, it, it makes sense. Oh, but he's black. But what he said is true. Oh, but he's black. So they're having a cognitive dissonance. They know what I said made sense. They know what, what I said is true, but they don't want to believe it because I'm black. That's the only reason they don't want to believe it because I'm black. So how much sense does that make? The truth is the truth, whether, it, whether it's told by a black person or a white person or, or a green person. All right. So they, str they struggle with that cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the easiest path to follow is the path of least resistance. So over time, they think, you know, do I, do I want to keep struggling with this dissonance? Do I, do I want to, to believe the truth and then change my ideology and go in this direction? Or do I want to disbelieve the truth just because he's black and continue living a lie. That's the struggle. They have to make up their mind which, which way they want to go. Most people, not all, most people will follow the truth because the truth is the least resistant. You know, when you, when you deal with a lie, you're dealing with all kinds of other stuff and it goes back and you got to tell one lie to cover up another lie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right. And so depending upon where you are in, in the clan, if, like I said, if you're a leader, it may be a little harder may take a little longer to give up that power, that influence that you have over your, your followers, mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody who, who has no leadership. All right. So, you know, how do you go to your followers and say, Hey folks, I'm leaving. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I led you down the, the wrong path. That takes a lot of strength. Yeah. And I just got some thoughts of the process of knowing who you are. Um, just some little tidbits that could help if you are unsure, if you maybe have some insecurities, 
um, which could easily make you punch somebody if you're not careful. Um, so it's not very good or profitable to do or to keep putting it in your stomach uh, and not addressing it. Right. So knowing who you are, you could um, you should be careful with having one flawed person be your sole inspiration. Like clearly some of these KKK members I was doing. Uh, be careful about instant gratification learning of who you are because uh, dopamine is not a, a way right. to address, identify who you are. Uh, truly learning who you are can be painful and time-intensive work, but it's worth it at the end. So you could be in these sorts of meetings like uh, Daryl Davis and not be hindered or devolve the conversation by insecurities and uh, potentially having to punch somebody. <laughs> 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 Any other ways uh, you could uh, better know who you are, Daryl? Advice? Well, you know, do, do some introspection. You know, take take a review every so often. You know, just gauge yourself. You know, where have you come from? Are, are there things, you know, that um, that you were raised to do by your parents? And then later on, you found, you know, maybe this is a better way to go. Uh, just because your parents were raised that way, it may not translate to your growing up. And they have, you know, um, influenced you to do those things. But now you're going to raise your kids a little differently or something. Um, you know, just take some introspection. Uh, pe people, people do what they know from where they come from. But there's something wrong with exploring and, and you know, and becoming a little different. Uh, as long as you're on an honest and, and righteous path. You know, don't, you know, don't, you know if, if your parents did not raise you to be a criminal, don't go out there and become a criminal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just because, you know, you want to be different, you know. But um, every now and then, reflect upon yourself. Where was I? Where have I come? Is there anything that, that I've changed that my parents wouldn't do or that I'm doing? Um, what, what have I kept the same? What would I want my kids to do? You know, things like this, just like, you know, we may not appreciate the music of our kids. Um, you know, we have our own stuff, but they don't appreciate our music either. We didn't appreciate our parents' music. You know, whatever. We all have our own little things as we grow. So just do some self-reflection and introspection every so often. That, you know, yeah. that keeps us balanced and that tells us who we are, where we've come and where we want to go. How do we yeah. want to be seen by others? Yeah, and that's kind of a and walk one, of, oh go ahead. Yeah, what one last thing is this. Understand something. Your most your most precious and most valuable asset is your credibility. Your credibility. Not not your money, not what kind of car you drive. It's your it's your credibility. If people find you to be credible, even if they hate you, if they find you to be credible, they will respect you. Okay, but if, if they catch you being un, you know, incredible or uncredible, uh, mm -hmm. they're not going. They're not going to trust you. All right. So, you know, always be always be truthful with them. If um, if if somebody says something to you that is simply not true, and you know for a fact that it's not true, you can say, "Listen, I know for a fact that this is incorrect. This is the fact here. Blah blah blah. And here is the evidence to show you." If you if you're not sure, um, and and you're expressing your opinion, then don't give them your opinion as though it's a fact. Say, listen, you know, I don't know, but my opinion, how I feel, is this. Always preface it by saying, "This is my opinion." 
Because if you try to sell your opinion as a fact and it turns out it's not true, then you've ruined your credibility. Um, my, my goal is to always um, be trustworthy, be credible with these people. I don't lie to them. If there's something that I disagree with, I'll tell them that I disagree. And if, if, I, if I disagree because I feel that way, I'll say, well, this is how I feel. This is my opinion. Uh, or if I disagree because I know different, I know for a fact, I tell them this is a fact and I will bring you the evidence or if I have it here, I'm, I'm going to show it to you. Okay, because I want them to know that I'm credible because I want to see them again. So even if we disagree, even if this person hates me and I've interviewed the person, I want to see him again. So I say, hey, listen, um, I appreciate all the information you've given me. Um, let me process it. And do you think I can call you in a couple of weeks and uh, I might have a couple more questions. Maybe we can get together. You can clarify some things for me. If he finds me, or even though he hates me, if he finds me to be credible, I'll say, yeah, that's cool. Okay. You know, but if, but if he catches me in a lie or, or something, something you know, that's not credible, nah, now nah, we're done. You know, this is it. So then I don't get to see him again. The more I get to see that person, the more I close that gap and the more he trusts me. And then he begins wondering, why do, why do I hate that person? I, I, I like that guy. We have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. And then he struggles with that cog- cognitive dissonance. And that's what I wanted to achieve. That's beautiful. Oh my gosh. Jason, any last comments before we conclude? No, I I think those are great concluding words. So I will, I will bear it in silence. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Daryl, what a shiny example of a Christian. You have uh, taken courageous steps to express what it should be like to be a, living uh, fire-like image of, of Jesus and God and caring for our siblings, even if they might not feel fear, uh, feel we are uh, siblings through their own fear, through their own insecurities, through their own atrophied upbringing. Some of them even got in clan youth groups. So that may just be all they know since they were five years old. And so I have, I hope I have the courage to have these sorts of difficult conversations one day so that we could um, just further sanctify each other and people that want to know Jesus better and want to know God better. And Daryl, just thanks again for your time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. And y'all have a blessed day. Thanks for watching from Pain to Gain. Take care. Bye-bye.